Welcome to part two here at The Eight as we are on our series titled Roots. Here are some comments I have no problem with. I have zero, I have zero issue with any of these quotes. Love has no gender, no problem. We believe in evolution, no problem. We want justice, no problem. Love is love, no problem. I got no problem with any of these comments. I have no problem with any of these statements. But it all depends how you define it. It all depends how you define these four quotes. Because to you, it might be something different than me. Because some people might define justice as if they don't have the same worldview as you, you make sure that you slice their head off. Some people would say that's justice. Some people in the world would say that's justice. And obviously some people define love in their own way. Or they define, define love in a sexually charged way without looking at the epitome of the definition of what love is. The epitome of how all these comments fall and how I define all these terms come from one constant definition of a Greek term titled agave. This is the epitome of ethics. This is the epitome of divine love. This is the essence of the definition of love. And all types of love come from this. If I want to look at selfish love, if I want to look at mutual love, and all those types of love fall into this, this being the epitome. This is the overarching definition of the essence of what love is. And this is what we are talking about here in this series. There was a philosopher in the 6th, uh, not sorry, not in the 6th century, in the 4th century by the name of St. Gregory, St. Gregory the theologian. And he wrote down these words, part of a liturgical service in which we pray till today. And actually we prayed it this morning for those who prayed the liturgy with us. He said this, the oneness of heart that is of love, may it take root in us. The oneness of heart that is of love, may it take root in us. And I said last week, oneness of heart, man, doesn't that sound so good? We all want oneness of heart, right? But it has to be rooted in love. But what is love? Is it love that has no gender? Is it love is love? How do I look at love? The ethic of love is what has to take root in us. And St. Gregory was so intentional about using this verbiage to describe what we're desiring. For me to love someone who's nice to me, that's super easy. For me to love someone that For me to love someone who's like me, that's easy. But to love someone who has hurt me, and for me to still push love, man, it's this type of love I hate. I don't want to, to pursue it. But if I'm desiring life, man, I have to intentionally put this in prayer and action for this to take root in me. Why is he using, why is St. Gregory, a philosopher, a theologian, an early Christian, so intentional about saying, let it take root in us? Because when pain, when wind, when famine comes, that I want this root to take root in me. Not when it's convenient, but I want it to take root in me. So when hardship comes, that I have this divine ethic of love rooted into the very fabric of who I am. Tis the week for these two terms, isn't it? Liberal versus conservative. It always blew my mind how the, 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 the term, like some, someone being liberal, is very progressive. Once you start saying that, who doesn't want to be progressive? I always want to progress more to, forward in life. But if I look at these definitions, being liberal, being conservative, or being progressive, 
Those are all relative terms as well. How you might define, oh, I'm progressive, might be very different than me. What you might define as being liberal might be very different than how you define, uh, how I define it. How you define conservatism might be very different than how I define it. So sometimes we jump into arguments. We jump into social media posts. We jump into to, to the divisive language without even pausing and saying, well, what do you mean when you say love? What do you mean when you say love is love? What do you mean by saying that you're a liberal? What do you mean by X, Y, like, we need to get down to the essence of definitions for us to move forward. So, in order for us to move forward, let's look at a couple of definitions real quick. Conservatism. Commitment to traditional values and ideas with opposition to change or innovation. Okay, but if, isn't innovation good? So is conservatism bad? Liberalism. Willingness to respect or accept behavior or opinions different from one's own. Openness to new ideas. Okay, then I, I guess I'm a liberal. I want to be open to new ideas and willingness to respect and accept behavior that might be a little bit different than mine. So should I be a conservative or should I be a liberal? How do I look at this? Again, it is relative. I, what is, what, like, it, it all depends how I define the terms. If I look 2,000 years ago, do you know what was a conservative view 2,000 years ago? A very conservative view in which Jesus walked into this culture. A very conservative view is women are property. Women are property. That was a very conservative view. Like that, that was the normal, that was the ethic of society back then. A conservative view was that women were viewed as property. Then came a radical. Then came the movement of Christianity. Then came the person of God, Jesus, who radicalized and came as a liberal to fight against that cultural norm. It was the movement of Christianity, historically, that elevated women for, to their honor and dignity and equality to men. Before that, it was low. Just to give you one example, when a, when a, when a bunch of hotshot Jewish leaders came to Jesus and said, give me the reason of why I can divorce my wife. Get, is it when she overcooks the meat? Do I have the right? When she you know, forgets to make dinner or when she's whatever. When, when do I have the right to divorce? And what was God's response? God was so liberal and radical, moving away from that conservative view of women and marriage, that Jesus says, what, what, what God has put together, it is not your role to put, to, to put a wedge in between that. What God has put together in a mystical union, it is not your job to, to, to put a wedge in that or to separate that. That's not you. What God has put together, let no man put asunder. What made Jesus, just from a historical perspective, let's just start historically, what made him so radical, what made him stick out in world history, is because he pushed past all those cultural boundaries. How love was defined, he redefined it. What it means to extend love to someone, he redefined what that looks like. He eventually redefined what life is. He eventually redefined what death is. And he redefined that through his life. People who are, are our first core value here at St. Mark Church is come as you are. Why? Why, 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 are we, why do we just say that cliche saying come as you are? Because it was personified in the icon of God. It was personified in God incarnate. It was personified in Jesus Christ. People who were nothing like him liked him. People who were nothing like Jesus liked him. And this is our calling as well. 
people who are nothing like him liked him because of how he pushed a rabbi unconditional love to others without expecting anything in return. And what Christ has given us, this is what we are called to give to others. In the church calendar, today we honor one of the writers of the Gospels. So we know we have four records of Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Today, in the church calendar, the church honors the martyrdom of St. Luke the Evangelist today. And actually, this week, I fell in love with the story. For those who are with us in the, in, the, in the liturgy today, I fell in love with who he is. What made St. Luke so unique in his writing of, of Jesus' life is that he had no, quote-unquote, spiritual background. He wasn't a hotshot Jewish guy that knew the laws and knew what to do. He wasn't Jewish at all, actually. He was a Gentile, which we know. But he was a physician. His career is he was a doctor. And he was also a, a painter. We, we know historically this is who he was. So him being a physician, his style of writing was very detail-oriented, very detail-oriented, very scientific, very make sure that he wanted to capture all the facts. And this is how he opens up his gospel, of saying that I did thorough, comprehensive research on the reality and life of who Jesus is. And he opens up very scientifically to show how this transformed his life and for him to give us that manuscript as well, in which we know today being the gospel according to St. Luke. And I wanted to highlight, again, keep in mind now, this is a very detail-oriented detail guy and someone with not a, a, a spiritual background, recording the life of this rabbi, Jesus, who eventually he realized is the divine in flesh. Now, keep that in mind as we look now at his writing style. So we jump into the fifth chapter according to uh, the gospel, according to St. Luke. St. Luke begins like this. Sorry, that's his, that's his icon. I love this icon. I love the style. Um, we're not going to get into why ancient Christian art looks different, but you can see within him he's holding a book, which is the gospel, and then you also see the icon kind of showing that that's his hobby. He was an iconographer. He was a painter. Anyway, that's who St. Luke is. We continue. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi, sitting at his tax booth. So St. Luke, being detail-oriented, he's a doctor, right? He wants to make sure he captures all the detail, makes a big point to point out Levi's career. Why? Historically, somebody who's a tax collector was the, was the worst. They were selfish human beings that loved to steal money and, and take advantage of the corruption in society and in the economy. So St. So Luke wanted to make sure that we, the reader, understood the status of who Levi is. We continue. So after this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth, at his job. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Then Levi held a huge house party. He held a great banquet for Jesus at his house. And a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with him. If you were just reading this, 1,800 years ago, 2,000 years ago, you would pause and read that verse twice. Like, wait, wait, what did this physician just record? A tax collector, this rabbi, having a house party with Levi and other tax collectors? Man, this is super liberal. This is like, why? Like, there, there's something I'm missing. Did I read that right? He continues. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their, to their sect, complained to his disciples. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Let's pause right there. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, here are the people who memorized 634 laws. 
They know God. They know God of the Torah. They memorize 634 laws. They're coming. They see the house party from afar. But they're like, man, this is, this is a huge no-no. We are, we are conservatives. Why is Jesus being so radical, being so liberal, and not only talking with tax collectors, but having a house party with them? So what do they do? They want to find out more detail. They go to the driveway of where the house party is. The tax collectors, uh, sorry, the Pharisees, the, the, the people that, who knew the law, the quote-unquote religious people, came to the driveway of where the house party is. But the Pharisees and teachers of the law who belonged to their, to their sect complained to his disciples. So they saw the disciples inside the house party. Maybe the party's, some of it's outside, some of it's inside. So the, the Pharisees tell the, tell the disciples, Jesus' disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? So the, the Pharisees say, come on, guys, why, why? Matthew, come on. Peter, why, 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 why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Why are you guys doing this? Come on, you guys are good Jewish men. You know we should love one another, but you know this is absurd. You know this goes against society norm. Come on, we, we're conservatives. We're conservatives. What are you doing? Jesus answered them. Jesus heard the Pharisees from the driveway. So what does Jesus yell? It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Don't look past this. You are a task collector. People always view you as a disgusting human being because of your selfishness and in taking advantage of corruption. You're having a house party with Jesus. And Jesus yells out to the Pharisees who are in the driveway, I have come for the sick. Imagine you're there. Now all of a sudden you feel like Jesus is disrespecting you. Jesus is basically calling you sick. And, and, and Jesus is calling you a sinner. An early Christian by the name of St. Cyril of Alexandria. St. Cyril of Alexandria. We talked to my also, also this morning in liturgy. St. Cyril, Cyril of Alexandria was, an, was a, a Christian writer, a theologian, in the 4th century. He's actually one of the heads of the Coptic Orthodox Church, but till today, he is honored and venerated in the Catholic Church, the Lutheran Church, the Anglican Church, because of his profound writings and meditations of Scripture. And as St. Cyril is reading this record that St. Luke recorded for us, St. Cyril pointed something. And I love this meditation that St. Cyril gave us in the 4th century, and I would like to share that with you. This is what St. Cyril... I want to make, make sure why I'm making a big point about this. If I'm wanting to understand the essence, or uh, the, historically, who is Jesus? If I'm wanting to understand mystically, if I'm wanting to understand the spiritual reality of who Jesus is, I want to see... How was this manuscript lived out in the first few decades, and the first few centuries of Christianity? This is the fullness of the church. This is why I'm making a big point for us to read what St. Cyril read. If I'm wanting to understand the essence of what St. Luke is trying to record here, historically, in so much detail, and what is the application for me, I want to look at how the early Christians lived that out. Not my own, my own opinion of what Jesus is doing, why he's having this house party. I'm not, I'm not here to say, well, I think Jesus had this house party with the tax collectors because who am I to say? I want to tap into the reality of how the early Christians interpreted and how did they live out this passage that they read from this physician by the name of St. Luke. So St. Cyril says this, but for what reason do the Pharisees blame the Savior for eating with sinners? 
So he's giving this meditation. Why are the Pharisees giving, giving Jesus such a hard time for having dinner with the tax collectors? Why? Why, why are the Pharisees giving Jesus such a hard time? Because it was the law to distinguish between the holy and the profane. That is, holy things were not to be brought into contact with things profane. The Pharisees, their conservative view of the law, follow the law, this is how you express love. This is how you should be kind to people. Anything outside of that is wrong. Holy stays with holy things, profane stays away. How many of us, including myself, put laws to ourselves? I shouldn't love that person because of their hurt that they gave me. They don't deserve it. Well, if they never said that, or if they never posted that, if they never did that years ago, if they, if they never said that, maybe it'll be easier for me to love them. We begin to construct our own laws that put a division. The Pharisees were watching Jesus at this house party like this and saying, man, he doesn't know the law. And they were so stuck to the law. And because of that, they could not find life. How many of us make our own laws? You know what? I'm not going to apologize because she knows exactly what she did. You know what? I have every right to go do what I want because my wife said this or because she doesn't, she doesn't respect me, so I have every right to behave this way. We make our own laws and we justify it. They made the accusation, therefore, as if they were vindicating the law. Yet, it really was envy against the Lord and readiness to find fault. The Pharisees were ready to find fault in Jesus because of how Jesus expressed love. But he shows them that he is present now, not as a judge, but as a physician. He performs a proper function to the physician's office, being in the company of those in need to be healed. It was so hard 2,000 years ago for those Pharisees to look at Jesus, to look at Rabbi as a physician when they expected him to be a judge. How many of us, we'd rather put on our judge cap and judge and justify the way I express love as opposed to being a physician of bringing healing to broken relationships, to bringing healing to how I express love. No, isn't it easier? Our natural reflex is to be a judge. I have every right to behave this way. They have every right to, they deserve what came their way, right? Isn't it easier to be a judge? It was so hard for the, for the Pharisees to comprehend because they saw Jesus that he should be a judge because they wanted to be a judge. It's easier to be a letter of the law than to extend love in a relationship. It's so much easier to be stuck to law than to extend that to express love unconditionally. Forget what Jesus expressed. Forget what San Cyril said. How did the life of Christianity, the spirituality of Christianity, the spirituality of ancient Christianity, how was that expressed moving forward from this first century? How, was the early, how did the early Christians express love from that, moving, that, from, that, from that moment moving forward? Don't take my words. Look at what an early Christian by the name of St. Severus of Antioch says. 
Let us forgive liberally so that we may deserve a forgiveness which is more liberal. I want to be sensitive about this. It's not like I press a button, yeah, yeah, I forgive that person. It's not a button. But I'm asking myself, and I'm asking you, do we move in the direction of forgiving others? Again, it's not a button. We're complex human beings. And pain is real. But do we move in the direction of forgiving, liberally? Or do we justify it? Do we want to put it in a nice package and put some laws around it? We want to be the judge as opposed to a physician. Fast forward 100 years from St. Severus. There's an early Christian by the name of St. John Climacus. He says this. Great is the man. Great is the man who does all that lies within his power. Right? Don't you say, yeah, I did everything I possibly can to, to, to love this person. Right? We, 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 we look back and say, I did everything. That's, their, that's her fault. That's, that's his fault. That's th their fault. I did everything I can. They don't want to hear it. They don't have to hear it. Great is the man who does all that lies within his power. But greater still is the man who, in all humility, tries to do more. My question for you and me. Where is the divine ethic of love asking you to go next? I intentionally did not want to write down, where does love ask you to go next? Because... We can hijack that word love and say, you know, for, love for me is to cuss that person out. Love for me, they need to know love, so I need to write down this post so they can understand what love is. We are very creative human beings, and that's from God. We're very creative human beings. It's a beautiful gift from above. But we take it and come our own version of love. Where is the divine ethic of love asking you to go next? I was sharing with my life group on... Thir uh, Thursday. I am painfully convicted this week of how divine love is asking me to go next or where the divine ethic of love is asking me to go next. I hate it. I hate confronting that. But if I'm wanting to find love, if I'm wanting that divine ethic of love to be rooted in me, I know I have to take that painful step. I hate it. And I struggle with it. But if I'm wanting to pursue the divine ethic of love, if I'm wanting to be an icon of the reality of who Jesus is, then I have to ask myself, where does the divine ethic of love asking me to go next? Not to think next. What is love asking me to do next? If we are wanting to have roots planted in this ethic of love, it requires us to be liberal in love. If we're wanting this root to grow within us, we have to be liberal in the way we view love and extend love. You can ask my wife. I'm talking to myself first and foremost. If you do not have a grudge or bitterness or any negativity towards someone, that means you don't know anybody. <laughs> All of us are in this position. It's either you don't know anybody or you don't have a pulse right now. It's one of those two things. We're all in the same boat. 
And you're here because you're wanting to find the essence of love. You're wanting to tap into the reality of the one who says, I have come to bring life and bring it to the fullest. You're here because maybe you're curious historically of the reality of Jesus. Or maybe you're wanting to apply the reality of who he is to your life on a personal level. Regardless of where you are, answer yourself this question. Where does the divine ethic of love ask you to go next? And when we push this epitome of love out, without expecting anything in return, it is guaranteed to us this is where we will find life. This is where we will find the fullness of life. What I love of what St. Luke recorded in the gospel, he records those people at the house party. You ever, you ever curious what happened to them? What happened to the rest of the tax collectors? The other people there, they left the house party. They probably brought nothing to the party. They had a great time. Jesus had catering, probably the best food, probably the best night ever. They left. What happened to them? Who cares? It is my job to push love toward others. Would they, how they respond to it, it's on them. But it's my responsibility to push love liberally without expecting anything in return. Let's stand up for a prayer. Let us take some time in silence for us to chew this question in our heart. Where does the divine ethic of love, who is my physician, where is he asking me to go next? In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Lord, if it is not us that live out the reality of divine love, then how can we find change within ourselves? How can we find change in our families? How can we find change in those around us? How can we find change in our workplaces? If it is not us that uncomfortably and painfully pursue this divine ethic of love, Lord, you didn't just give us in writing how we should love one another. You didn't just give us a textbook about how we should love one another. We don't just have a bunch of writings from early Christians on how to love liberally, but you expressed it in action. And the Samaritan woman saw that reality of love. Broken people around you saw that reality of love. And we here today want to see that same love in our lives. I pray for myself, I pray for everyone here that we can embrace this question, not to justify it, not to come with excuses, our own version, our own definition, but for us to love liberally and for us to be the icon of who you are. Through the prayers of St. Luke, the evangelist, and all your saints, Lord, hear us as we pray thankfully. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, 
and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Thank you, guys. Uh, just a reminder, next Sunday we'll have Fall Y'all 